Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have a rebroadcast this week. Uh, a few of you have reached out to me saying, hey, didn't you do an episode on the Triduum and Holy Week? And the answer is yes. We actually did two of them back in season one, and they're called Roman Candles Part 1 and 2. But what I did here this week is I just took both of those episodes and combined them into one file for you so that you can listen to this and be properly prepared for Holy Week this year. So without further ado, a rebroadcast from Season 1. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. Dennis and I are going to start another podcast called Just the Crust. It's going to be great. It's all it's for all super tasters. So if you're a super taster, we're going to do Just the Crust. All crust, right, crust me, everyone. Yeah, you'll make me happy. <laughs> oh, in pie we crust. All right, so uh, we're going to talk about the Triduum today, right, Chris? Yes, we are. Is this, is this pronounced the Triduum? Triduum by some or Tridium? Tridium. No, it's a weird word. T R I D U U M. What does it mean? A tri- W? The triduum. W-M? It is a double U, but it's not a W. Okay, got it. So triduum is a hard word to say, but tridium is an element from the periodic table. So just oh, okay. like, don't call Virgil Michael, Virgil and Michelle. Don't call it the triduum, tridium. Got it. Okay. What does it mean? Try it's the three days. Three days. Three dooms. <laughs> no, it's not dooms. <laughs> but it is confusing. And there's uh, reasons then that um, there's certain things about the... T- Triduum, tridium, triduum, triduum that ought to be uh, recalled. Uh, you know, just the number of pages that the triduum liturgies take up in the missal must be close to a hundred. So yeah. there's a lot of we rubrics. We heard you flipping the, those yeah, before, yeah. Yeah. as you said, speed reading the rubrics. Uh, so there's a there's a lot to know, and you know, even with the change, it's been five years ago. So hopefully everybody's familiar with a lot of these. But there was a lot of uh, insertions and deletions and changes to the rubrics that. I thought maybe we would uh, recall as we approach the yeah, let's, uh, a lot of things overlooked. Th- John through the missile. And Chris, by the way, is one of the world's experts on the Triduum, Triduum because he has... <laughs> because three, nobody else is. Well, yeah. Um, Chris has been a presenter at the Liturgical Institute's Treasures of the Triduum Conference, so he is uh, well-versed mm. in all these things. Well, well let's uh, dive I, in. I tried to make this analogy this year about treasures. and So rubrics uh, comes from the Latin word ruber, and it signifies the... Ruby. The, yeah, the red text that's in the missal, but it's the same root as, as you just said, as rubies. Ruby. And so the, the you know rubric- what else is compared to rubies in the Christian tradition? What's that? The wounds of Christ's hands after the resurrection, that they're like oh, that glorified right? wounds that are like gems that attract uh, people to him. Well, looking at the rubrics that way would uh, yeah. uh, certainly change our oh. perspective. I mean, but they're not mindless, uh, uh, archaic uh, laws and instructions. I mean, what they're trying to do is to open up a treasure. Uh, which is the, the triduum if, if they're properly followed and implemented. So anyway, here's a couple of them. I'm going to start to... Let's see Can this I say point. one more thing about rubrics? Sure. Yeah. In the 1930s, when they were talking about the liturgical movement, they said the rubrics were like a beautiful frame around a painting, that the, the frame makes you know kind of how important the painting is, and it gives it edges so it doesn't sort of wander off. Uh, but the artwork is the liturgy itself. The rubrics make that frame, make that um, 
painting more knowable. Yeah, uh, similarly, I think it's Aidan Kavanaugh who makes this uh, comparison to rubrics being like the rules of grammar. Have I said this before? No, you're no. smirking at me. Just well, Aiden, never mind. Aiden Kavanaugh, sorry, one of our favorite people to mention. Nick Aiden Nichols. Oh yeah, did I tell you about the Aiden Nichols? <laughs> no, no. Oh, okay, what's Aiden the Kavanaugh. grammar? He says they're like the rules of grammar, right? You can't write good prose if you don't know the rules of grammar. Mm-hmm. Right? But if you don't know, it's, it's the rules of grammar themselves don't guarantee beautiful prose, but it's impossible without them. And so similarly, the liturgy, it, it's difficult to manifest a beautiful, luminous, radiant liturgy if, you, if you're not familiar with the rubrics. Right. You can't well, drive on the street without traffic laws, but laws are not the same as driving. That's okay. great. We've handled a lot right. of metaphors. Do you want any other analogies? We should probably here? start. Okay, right. Yeah, right. Okay. So here is, uh, here is cool rubric number one from the Mass of the Lord's wow. Supper. Cool rubric. Cool, cool rubric. rubric number right. one. Okay, so the first, this has to do with the uh, presentation of the gifts. And this is a rubric that is new to the third edition of the Roman Missal. That's it, the most recent one, right? Yeah, it's, okay, it's got the current it. one. So it's been around for about, uh, what, I guess five years now. It's coming on the fifth uh, Triduum. Uh, and it's a rubric that precedes the presentation of the gifts. And it says, at the beginning of the liturgy of the Eucharist, there may be a procession of the faithful with gifts for the poor that may be presented along with the bread and wine. All right, so nowhere else in the Missal on any other day does that rubric show up, but it does on the Mass of the Lord's Supper. So why, why is that? Hey, that's my question. Why okay. is that? Given what you know about the Mass of the Lord's Supper, why would that rubric be in there? Why is this a gem, a treasure that is helping to reveal the okay, hidden mystery of the Okay, I think it's related the to the mandatum. It is. Okay. Oh, that's not what I was going to say, but let's forget <laughs> well, that. <laughs> this mandate to go and to make disciples of all right. nations. Okay, so the mandate is... Uh, uh, to, to love one another as I have loved you, as is shown in the foot washing. Yeah, Jesse, love me. He's, he's, yeah, anyway. We should so, go on a mandate. So this is, <laughs> is that like a bromance? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> From the sublime to Just the mundane. <laughs> ask your wife first. That's all I ask. So, uh, right, and, and Holy Thursday was often called Mo- Monday Thursday. Oh, which yeah, was, I've heard which that. Is a, which has always confused me when I was... Uh, before I became a liturgist, is it Monday? Is it Thursday? You know, which one it's is Monday it? Monday Thursday. That's right. And so the Monday comes from this word mandate. It's the mandate Thursday to love one another and to uh, do acts of charity. Right? And so uh, this is signified by the foot washing. This is what we hear about in the gospel reading. Also, here's another unique uh, rubric for this same point. Uh, rarely does the church tell you to sing this song at this time. So there, nowhere else in the Missal, as far as I know, does the church prescribe an offertory song, but it does on Holy Thursday. What, what song is that? That's my question. I'll ask the question. Okay. okay what right, song is sorry. that, Jesse? Oh, the Song of Songs. I don't know. <laughs> what is it, Dennis? <laughs> hey, Mr. Tambourine Man. No. The Lord hears the cry of the poor. No. no okay, okay. Enough of the questions. All right. It's Ubi Caritas. You asked. <laughs> I'm not going to make that mistake all right. again. Ubi caritas. It's ubi caritas, where charity and love prevail. God oh, is always that makes sense. right. So we have we have uh, the gospel, we have the foot washing, we have the ubi caritas, and we have this rubric about gifts being offered along with the bread and wine. All right. So this rubric again is trying to uh, manifest what the mystery of Monday Thursday is about. Right? So if you're going to do this in a parish, which why shouldn't you? It's good, right? <laughs> if you want to write good and beautiful prose, do what the rubric says. But if you were going to do this in, in the parish, by the time you get to Holy Thursday, it's too late. I mean, pastors or 
CCD teachers, whatever they are, the people would need to know in the weeks leading up to Holy Thursday that, hey, on this night, bring other gifts for the poor because all of these are going to come forward with the gifts of bread and wine. That makes a lot of sense. This is just chalk it up to the church being really smart, I think. It is. She's yeah. been at this for a long time. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And yeah. you know what's interesting when you read the Acts of the Apostles and a lot of discussion about the very early church, they weren't really inviting people first to liturgical prayer. They were taking care of the poor. In fact, that's the word liturgy also included the meaning of going out, taking care of the poor. And people said, who are these apostles that they so love each other and they love everybody else and they give us stuff? Well, they, there must be some love flowing out of them. And then they said, who are you? And then they came and worshiped. So this notion of beginning with charity and leading people to God that way, I think, is way better than some of our modern people who like to point fingers and say, you're a heretic or you're a sinner, you know, get with mm-hmm. it or you go to hell. But that's fun, too. But, okay, so... The, well, some of your answers were right. heretical just now. <laughs> yeah, so. I believe it. Man. All right, let's, let's go to uh, cool rubric number two from cool Mass of the Lord's Supper. And it's related, to, uh, it's related to this one as well. So uh, this is uh, during the distribution of Holy Communion. Uh, the rubric says, at an appropriate time during Communion, The priest entrusts the Eucharist from the table of the altar to deacons or acolytes or other extraordinary ministers so that afterwards it may be brought to the sick who are to receive Holy Communion at home. This too is brand new to the third edition of the Roman Missal. Um, I don't recall if this, what its earlier source may have been, but so what does this say to you? Ooh, I think, can I? Give her a try, Jesse. So I think in the early mass, in, the, in ancient Rome, there was a sending forth of the Eucharist, and there were different dismissals, and the very end, you sent the Eucharist out. Does this have something to do with that, where they would send uh, it, it does, out? It okay. does, but if that's, that should be the case of every Mass, right? Right. So, but it's only in this Mass that we have this rubric. Okay. Why? Why is it unique appropriate that it's in the mass of the lord's supper because it is the mass of the lord's supper and that's the institution of the eucharist bingo, bingo. it's also Good kind of you. a supernatural mandatum to, isn't it? Like, well, don't it just is, take stuff but right. take heavenly stuff too. right right so uh what what is the command that jesus gives to his uh, apostles at the last supper go secularize all people no no go make people do this yeah. do this this is another mandate this is like the second mandate and similarly it's uh, uh, what uh, the, there's an expression, I don't remember what the Latin is in the tradition, that this is the birthday of the chalice. It's oh, the day on that which. That is a really cool yeah, phrase. Yeah, the day on which the Eucharist was born. All right, so uh, if we have, and the, this is the, there are three principal mysteries on Holy Thursday it's the command of charity, it's the institution of the priesthood, and it's the institution of the Eucharist. All right, and so this little rubric has at least two of those in mind, the, the command to charity and the Eucharist, right? So if this is the day on which the Eucharist is born in the church, and we have this command to, uh, to love, uh, uh, love one another as Christ has loved us, what this rubric is saying is to sacramentalize those realities by sending the Eucharist to those who are not being able to be present. You know what's coming to mind, Chris? What? Sacramentum caritatis. Is it? Say more. It's the sacrament of charity, right? Uh, yeah. So being nice to people with their earthly needs is fine, but what's even better? Bring the supernatural food to them. So it's kind of a double mandatum, I guess. It is. I think it's a great way to look at it, a Thanks. double mandatum. Yeah. But again, like that um, rubric about bringing gifts uh, to the poor, this one too, you can't just decide that evening that the parish is going to do this, right? Because these masses are usually in the evening. 
by the time the mass gets over, it could be anywhere from six or seven or eight or nine o'clock. That's not the usual time that someone who's homebound would be expecting a visit from the community minister. So uh, preparations would need to be made. Well, that's the question. Does that does this foresee that they actually go that night and bring yeah, Eucharist to people? You bet. So after after you mass bet. is over. Yeah. Uh, when uh, what does it say afterwards or when yeah. it is finished? But I mean, think about what this would say to 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 the parish and to the people in the assembly. You know, why is it that we have this? Uh, army or these number of people who are about to take the Eucharist to the homebound. I mean, this helps to not only express the mystery which Holy Thursday is, but to foster it into the participants that the church has a care with the Eucharist for uh, for other members of the parish. Yeah, they're members of the mystical body too. So should there be like a recruiting of people to be uh, that need the Eucharist to be delivered to them well, before? You, with well, the signing bonus? You know, no, you know what I mean. Like there should there be an active you know, moment where the parish is reaching out to people and saying, this is something that's part of the liturgy. Would you be interested in it? Yes. Okay. Yes. And I think uh, oftentimes uh, the pastor or the those uh, who help him with pastoral care knew, know who the homebound are. Mm-hmm. And they usually have visits uh, on first Fridays or Fridays or on Sundays after Mass. But this Holy, Holy Thursday evening would be different. So special arrangements would have to be made. You probably have to uh, make arrangement for more communion ministers to take the Eucharist. That, but, that sounds like a really good opportunity for an, an encounter like we talk about uh, with Christ, so the church knows what she's doing. She does. Excellent. Okay, you want to go to Good Friday? Cool any, rubric uh, number else? three. Cool rubric number cool three. Rubric number three. Um, there's a rubric uh, new to the missal that says the Good Friday liturgy may not be celebrated in the absence of a priest. Okay, so what it, does it mean? So Why is it deacon, there? And what might it mean? Right, deacon cannot do it. Right, and a, a lay person cannot do it. Right. And a bishop can, no. Uh, <laughs> but so this That's goes with, yeah. this is one of those three things. This is the institution of the priesthood. Oh, no, that was Holy Thursday. It is. Okay, so then I don't know the answer. Yeah. And you could do it without a priest before? No. Well, that was the confusion that mm-hmm. this is trying to put an end to, right? Because it was, it's not a mass. The Good Friday liturgy is not a mass, right? And so I think some of the thinking was in some places, well, if it's not a mass, then it's a very popular day, then yeah. Father will do it at this parish and the deacon can go do it at that parish. Oh. Uh, but no, that's not, uh, that's not a legitimate option, okay? Think about, think about Good Friday, what it does, and why it's appropriate that the priest is the one who celebrates it. Christ is offering his sacrifice on the cross. And that is what type of a work? Priestly. Bingo. Offering a Exactly, exactly. I mean, Good Friday is the priestly action par excellence of the entire year and of Christ's life. The, uh, The cross is the altar of sacrifice. Jesus is the priest who offers, and Jesus is the, the victim, the sacrificial victim, which is offered. All of Good Friday is about priesthood. Right? And so there's some other... Um, so that, that's yeah. just clarifying something that you know people were doing before. It, well, it is. I mean, it, it, but it's doing more than that. See, to be able to read the rubrics properly is to see the treasure that they contain. All right. So you could look at this and just say, well, I guess Deacon Bill can't do this anymore. Mm-hmm. But what, Sorry, we should say, what we should say is, well, what is the theology inherent in these rubrics yeah, that the church wants us it's to see? It's not saying deacons can't do it. It's saying priests should do it, and here's why. Well, see, this is the problem. Uh, 
it doesn't often say here's why. Oh, so that's what that's well, what we we're have to saying supply. Here's why. Okay, so it's a priestly action, but there's other rubrics on Good Friday that signify the same thing. Another is is that, and this is actually on, on Holy Thursday too, uh, at the homily, it specifies in the Triduum that the priest gives the homily. Right. So the deacon can preach on other Sundays throughout the year, but when it comes to the Triduum, no, the priest gives the homily. Also. Uh, at the showing of the cross, there's two forms of this. There's one where, in fact, a deacon or another minister can carry the cross in from the entrance of the church. But the more ancient way is that the priest does it from the sanctuary. And there's some rubrical details that make this point. One is that if it takes place in the sanctuary, the priest is the one who uncovers it. Where do you suppose he stands if this is all about priesthood? At the um, altar. At the altar, yeah. Uh, at the altar, right? He doesn't do it at the chair or at the ambo. He goes in front of the altar because this is the place of sacrifice. The altar is Christ. And when the, that's right. And when the, when the cross is being uncovered and it is sung, Behold the wood of the cross on which hung the Savior of the world, who is supposed to sing that? The priest. The priest. What if he can't sing it? Can the deacon sing it then? No. No. Can the choir sing it then? No. No. It says in each case in the rubric that the priest sings, Behold of the wood of the cross. He may be assisted, if necessary, by a deacon or a choir, but he's the one to sing it. And why? Because this day is all about priesthood. And so it has the priest uh, singing these, showing the cross, and the rest. It's the heat. The heat is on? The heat is on. Yeah, so ignore that uh, heat thing in the back. But that's that's really brilliant. Now, were those things that you just said on on, on Holy or uh, Good Friday were those new as well, or were those yes. there? Okay. Uh, yeah. Right. Okay. So this. Uh, yes. Yeah. That's. New. So they they're basically making a statement there about the priesthood on Good Friday. Yes. Okay. Got yeah. it. Yeah. So again, that's why I say look at these rubrics not as uh, dry instructions that you know some uh, disconnected uh, cardinal in a congregation made up three centuries ago. No, they're they're treasures of theology that if we follow them appropriately. Something beautiful I think you're a treasure of theology, Chris. Because Aww. really, there are three ways to... You guys should go on a mandate. <laughs> <laughs> we'll bring his wife. There are three ways to look at rubrics. One is, oh, they're just getting our way. Let's do what we want. The other one is, we are bound to the law and we're going to be really rigid and we have to do it exactly because that's the law. Neither of which are full or healthy. The best way, I think, is the way Chris does it and the way the Liturgical Institute does it is that the rubrics teach us how to express more fully the nature of what happens in the liturgy. And that is fitting. Uh, so let's go to the next one, Chris. Cool rubric number four. Cool rubric number four. Uh, it is this. This has to do about the uh, adoration of the cross. And there had been um, a rubric in the 1985 sacramentary that said, in the dioceses of the United States of America, a second or third cross might be used for the adoration. But um, it doesn't say that anymore. Right? No. So the rubric now uh, at number 19 says, only one cross should be offered for adoration. But Chris, 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 what if there's a thousand people there? Isn't this gonna take forever? It would take forever. So the alternatives that get the, that's, that's good, Jesse. <laughs> Uh, the alternatives, it says, is that uh, um, some ministers and some of the faithful may adore the cross, and then the priest holds up the cross for all to venerate in silence for a period of time, and then the cross is uh, placed uh, before the altar, or there's, a, there's an instruction in this letter called Pascales Solemnitatis that says the cross can actually be placed in the 
place where adoration took place the night before on Holy Thursday. And people can adore the cross for as long as they want to after the Good Friday liturgy. That makes sense. That's practical. Well, it is practical, but what uh, it's also typological too, Jesse. Uh, well, if I knew what that word meant, I would be able to respond. It means in the Old Testament, there are persons or events that anticipate the coming of Christ and his saving work. All right, so think about the priest holding up the cross for all to venerate. What Old Testament uh, story or person Moses is it? holding up his staff. That's exactly right. So Nailed after it. after the people are whining and complaining and they get bit by these serpents, Moses makes a bronze serpent and he lifts it up and those who look upon it are healed, healed from the serpent's bite. Right? So those of us who are able to look so upon who's it. the serpent in the big scheme of things? It's the devil. The devil who seduced Adam and Eve. And now we're healed from original sin in the fall. Yeah. So, But this is one that even today is overlooked often. You see places that still use two or three crosses, but it's no longer an option. Uh, Dennis, this appears a lot in architectural terms. There's There's this emphasis on the singular object. One tabernacle versus three. One altar versus three. Things like that. What does it mean? There's a singularity of Christ. Or even, <laughs> one Christ. Yeah, or even the ch- uh, even the chair. We've talked about the chair before. These kind of old-fashioned sedalia that have you know a bench or three chairs welded together. The priest yeah. chair is supposed to be freestanding and singular. Right. This clarification of symbols and the primacy of the primary symbols being brought out is a big concern of the 20th century. Yeah. Oh. Good. All right. So one cross for adoration. And we also did one of our liturgy guys' questions about uh, should it have a corpus or not, and we talked about that. So you can go back to, I think it's our first podcast episode, we, we answered that. But mm-hmm. cool. <laughs> well, we tried to answer it well, yeah. so far as there so, is. So uh, cool rubric number five. Yeah, and so now let's move to the uh, Easter Vigil. Uh, let's see, there's, oh, there's just so many to choose from here. Let's talk about the Paschal Candle. Yes. Uh, the Paschal Candle uh, should be prepared for which effective symbolism must be made of wax, never be artificial, renewed each year, and only be one in number, and lastly, sufficiently large size so that it may evoke the truth that Christ is the light of the world. All right, so notice the descriptors about the Paschal candle. It's wax, it's new, it's one, and it's large. Why? Uh, because that's like Christ. The, the Paschal candle <laughs> is Christ. That's he's right. He's large. No, so he's, he's, he's one. He's big time. Now, the only one I don't, the one that eludes me is the wax. Why would that be mandated? Yeah, uh, well, because nature itself is, I think all the natural elements that are expressing their newness, you know, at least in the Northern Hemisphere, we have the new springtime, we have uh, uh, the new daylight, we have earth coming back to light. So, I mean, the, the, the modifier new is applicable to everything at the Easter Vigil. We have new water, new fire, new candle, uh, oh, I just I jumped the rails there. Uh, why, why the wax? I have okay. something to say it's, about it's, wax. Okay. Well, in the tradition, you know, bees are uh, mentioned in the... In the um, uh, Exalted. Well, Exalted, right. The bees. Why are there bees? It's this cosmic dimension that bees go out and they, they pollinate flowers. And they make honey, which is this biblical symbolism of sweetness and blessing of God. But they also make wax. So the wax is made in this natural process so that the world and the bees contribute their part to the praise of God and the coming of Christ. And so the, um, bees are part of this cosmic 
preparation for the coming of Christ. So you could just have a, an oil lamp or whatever, but it wouldn't have that same notion of creation worshiping as well. All right, so beeswax, not earwax. Got it. <laughs> yeah, and actually there are a lot of older rules that say candles have to be at least 51% beeswax. When they figured out how to make artificial beeswax, it had to be at least the majority made by bees and not by oh, chemists in a that's lab. That's kind of a weird thing to have the yeah. actual ratio, but... Yeah. Uh, but what, what got me going on this newness business, so that's the one thing that's probably most commonly overlooked. I mean, you buy this expensive, large Paschal candle. And, and you only use it year, one year. It's like you're leasing it, you know? Yeah, well, you certainly don't burn very much off of it. You think, well, why do I need to get a new one? I mean, it, you know, it's mostly there. But uh, again, it's, it's, it, everything is about newness and uh, leftovers and uh, recycled uh, uh, cheap candles are, are not they do not say newness last year's easter candy giving it to your kid the next hey, year in, in the, yeah, but the you know that's a pretty green way of living so huh. what do you do what do you do with the old paschal candles you can uh, actually i think you can turn it into your easter candle uh, provider and they'll buy it back i think on a cheap uh, they'll give you a little bit of a discount do they on like melt it? yeah they'll recycle okay. it nice recycle. that's really cool yeah all right Cool rubric number six. Cool. Is this the last one we're doing? Yeah, it can be. I okay. mean, this could go on for a long time. Yeah, let's do one more. We'll do one more. Okay. okay. Uh, and this, too, is one that uh, signifies a little bit of a change uh, from the 1985 sacramentary. It says, uh, if a deacon, it's really about who carries in the Easter candle. Oh, right? you mentioned this on the podcast. Did I? Okay, yeah. what's the answer? The answer is the deacon. And right? if the and deacon if the can't not, do it, it's a lay person, but not the but priest. not the priest. That's right. So um, This seems kind of backwards, right? Because we're talking about the priest is the Good Friday priest, is the symbol of this is Christ's action, priestly action. Why wouldn't Is the priest, the priest doing something else at the time in which he can't do this? He's outside yes. having a cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> well, smoke break. He's, well, there is smoke involved in here, too. Uh, how I see it is, is uh, when, you do, when the rubrics describe the entrance into the church, the first thing in the procession is the thurible. Mm -hmm. The second thing into the procession is the Paschal candle. The third thing into the church is the priest. So he's got his own role to play. He can't be doing he's both. He's carrying things. himself. He's carrying himself. And finally, the last thing into the, to the church is the people. And this seems at least, I hope this is a legitimate interpretation of these types, but as the chosen people leave the darkness of slavery and sin of Egypt, they know where to go because... Uh, by day, there is a pillar of cloud, perhaps this is uh, mm -hmm. the thurible, the and a pillar of fire, okay. which is Christ. And then there's Moses, who is following them. Mm -hmm. And the finally, priest. there come the, uh, uh, the, the chosen people. And so those prefigurements and foreshadows and types are now being realized in the Paschal uh, Triduum by following the incense, following the candle, following Moses, from darkness into a new Jerusalem. And what is the church building but the architectural image of the new Jerusalem or the heavenly Jerusalem? So you used to go in the walls of the city of Jerusalem on earth. Now the church is this prefigurement of the sacrament of this heavenly Jerusalem through which you enter into the heavenly realities. Yeah. So if there's any priests listening, do not carry in the Paschal candle at the Triduum. Or the Chris will hunt you down. <laughs> and, and, do not, liturgical and do not relinquish the homily to the deacon yeah, on Good Friday. Right. So, yeah. well, uh, well, you know, in the end, it's it's worth giving. Uh, everybody has too much to do these days, but it's worth taking a look at these rubrics, which in some ways are still a little bit fresh uh, to us, uh, to to remind ourselves what in fact they do say, but also to ponder a little bit about what's the theological meaning that right. each uh, has. For effective symbolism, it says effective. I mean, it does something 
in this way of bringing heavenly realities to you. Effective symbolism. Awesome. All right. So you guys know that we love the Liturgical Institute and we love everything that we do here. But you know who else loves the Liturgical Institute? Yeah, Bishop Robert Barron. And guess what he has to say about it? Well, I've known the Liturgical Institute from the very beginning. I was at Mundelein on the faculty in 2000 when it started. I knew Monsignor Mannion very well, who was the founder. Uh, Dr. McNamara, who was with him from the beginning, I've known. We've become good friends. I've spoken many times there. I've known all the faculty members. I've known many of the students. So I, I know from the ground up what the, um, the LI does. And they introduce people into the beauty of the church's intellectual tradition and liturgical tradition. And um, I don't know in the country a better place to go to get immersed precisely in that aesthetic dimension and the intellectual than the LI. So, you know, I'm a big fan. You know, we're talking about hidden riches, and I'm doing this on purpose because is it in Sacramentum Caritatis where Pope, Pope Benedict talked about finding the hidden treasures of the rubrics, which is crazy because I don't think anybody thinks of rubrics as treasures. But they're there, and they're hidden, and there's theology contained in them. And the reason I bring this up is because I was in the chapel the other day, and I had this deep, deep desire for a multimillionaire to endow the liturgical institute. Mm -hmm. And it was in prayer. It wasn't just like, oh, I wish we had somebody. I was like, I think God wants this. So I don't know if anybody's out there listening is a millionaire, multimillionaire, billionaire, knows somebody who is, but we do good work here. And the liturgical uh, liturgy guys is just one part of it. So if there are any hidden riches out there, please. Yeah, so there are two things we need. Start with pie crust. Yeah, yeah, we need pie crust, but we also need money. Maybe so. like $15 million. We'll name the place after your favorite saint or your family. We'll call it the Saint whatever, Liturgical Institute. Notre Dame is famous for this, of course. You know, they have the such and such family center for liturgical studies or whatever. So hidden riches, hidden riches become well, unhidden. Now, Chris, you have many hidden riches to tell. Well, us yeah, about. I want to. I just want to hide them well, <laughs> very well. Uh, I just want to say that we're going to continue our conversation from last week. We did uh, cool rubrics from the Triduum, but Chris, you're going to continue because I think we had to cut short that episode. It was uh, so we're going to do part two. Now these are six more rubrics, but just from the Easter Vigil, correct? Yeah, these. Uh, we may not get to six, but these are, let's call them really cool things that may go unnoticed if you're not watching. For That's them. a really long title. I'll just say Cool Rubrics Part 2. And cool and rubrics is not no, the, oxymoron. Oh, no, no, they go no, together. No. Actually, can I tell a story? So Kevin... Uh, so well, Aiden Kevin Nichols Wolver was... <laughs> wrote a tale of two documents. No, uh, I told you my embarrassing Carl story earlier, but we, we won't have to go into that right now. But this was the first, um, like the first... Uh, I don't know, significant uh, presentation I was going to give. Um, and it was actually at the Liturgical Institute. This must have been 15 years ago. Like a conference paper? Yeah, it was, yeah, it was a conference. And uh, my uh, topic was to, uh, it was to talk about um, uh, rubrics and the general instruction mm -hmm. as exciting sources of theology. I Kevin, remember that. You remember this? Remember okay. I think I came up with that idea. Okay, all right. And so you came up with it upon you. Oh, yeah, it was a great, great idea. So rubrics exciting sources of theology and so I, I prepared a long time for this I made this handout that I passed out to, to people but I misspelled uh, exciting like I forgot exiting the yeah so <laughs> it, it was rubrics exiting sources of theology <laughs> oh. but you know what exitus and reditus is awesome idea right yeah. Exitus are things that come from God and then mm -hmm. return to God and they yeah, take so us back to God. I wasn't that smart to salvage that. But rubrics, 
from stuff from God that brings us back to God. Well, we talked about Ruby last Ruby, week. Ruby, yeah. These are gems. These Ruby are treasures. It's red. And then, yeah. Dennis, you mentioned that also the wounds of Christ, which is pretty cool. Compared to rubies. Right. So they're the red markings in the missile, which is... Those are the actual mm-hmm. rubrics, correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what do we? Uh, so what do you got for Easter Vigil? Well, for one, th- okay. So last time we talked about the the proper order of the procession with the 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 thurible, the smoke going first and mm-hmm. the candle going second. And uh, yesterday in class we were talking about this very thing, and I was reminded of this um, this scene in uh, Genesis chapter fifteen where God establishes His covenant with. Abram, I think his name is mm-hmm. right then. Before it was Abraham. Right, right. And so uh, they, he takes these various animals and he, he cuts them in two, right? And he yep. puts a half on one side and half on the other. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, what happens next? So the old form of the covenant was you get an animal, you cut it in half, and then you light both of them on fire. And then you walk through in the middle, and that was like the covenant that you made with God. Okay, all right. That's Go as ahead. far as I got. Okay, do you remember uh, what passes through these two halves of the animal? The, the well, Abram did. Okay, who else? Uh, I, my guess would be God. Okay, in which forms? Oh, man, uh, the Holy Spirit. Okay, and that's half well, the answer. Uh, You're doing pretty well, The Jesse. Son of God. Okay, this is what Genesis chapter 15, verse 17 says. Um, when the sun had set and it was dark, there appeared a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, which passed between those pieces. Hmm. Right now, this speculation, I guess, this may or may not be relative to a new covenant that takes place uh, at the Easter Vigil, where we see a flaming torch and a smoking pot pass through into the midst of a new covenant. Okay, Paschal candle. Pascal candle. And thurible. Thurible, right there. Wow. Right there. Yeah, very cool, huh? Now, did any of this uh, smoke and fire happen with Christ's sacrifice? Because I know the old, the old Testament covenants were more foreshadowing of the, the covenant uh, sacrifice of Christ, right? So was there anything during the passion that had smoke and fire? Well, that, that I don't know, but okay. certainly we, uh, we fulfill that type it, with the, with the, the thurible and well, we the have fire, torch. No. We have fire on Pentecost, which yeah. is representative of the Holy yeah. Spirit. So yeah. that's that, the torch and the candle, right? Yeah, let's stay at the vigil, though. Sure. Let's stay at the vigil. Uh, but before we even leave this uh, passage, though, uh, earlier on, uh, God takes Abraham. It says, this is in uh, chapter 15, verse 5. He says, God took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars if you can. Just so, he added, will your descendants be, right? Mm-hmm. So describe the scene. What's happening there? Well, it's daytime because the That's sun had not it, set yet. Exactly. So we saw in uh, 17 that the sun had not even set yet. So imagine that, uh, and in fact, chapter 12 says, as the sun was about to set. So back in chapter 5, God takes Abram outside Outside, he says, look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. So our first maybe hearing of that would be he goes outside and he looks up and, oh, yeah, there's so many stars, I can't even count them. That's not mm-hmm. what's happening. He goes outside in the middle of the day, at least on this reading. Maybe there's some exegetical explanation that would say otherwise. 
But it's in the middle of the day that God takes Abraham outside. It says, look up and count the stars. Just so will your descendants be. <laughs> so you can't see them. <laughs> you but can't see anything. But, but they are there, and there are a lot of them. Apparently. Yeah. See, and this is why Abraham is called a, the, the father of obedience and faith, because all these things that on the surface of it sound you know, crazy well, or unbelievable. Asked to kill your only yeah. son. And I mean, to everything that God says to him, he says, "Okay, even okay. to conceive yes. Isaac, yes. right, and late yeah. in life and yeah. beyond the years of yeah. childbearing." No. Okay, let's go back to the Easter Vigil then. Here are some uh, uh, what I think are some cool things about the Easter Vigil. Cool rubric Wait, of the Easter you, Vigil. Before yeah, you do that, how yeah. does the stars and all that complete the animal being split in half? And are, are those related? Well, I think that's just foreshadowing. Yeah, what this we'll is a little later. bit of a, a tangent extension. But the, what's related is we see this smoking pot and this flaming torch all the way back with this first covenant. But associated with that covenant is this great act of faith that God is going to act in ways that you cannot even see that God will fulfill his promises if you see with the eyes of faith. Got it. Okay. All right. Now prove it. Uh, well, <laughs> where are the group. footnotes, Chris? <laughs> okay, cool things from the Easter Vigil. Now, one that is uh, not in the Easter Vigil anymore, but that um, would have been really cool had it been, is uh, I'm led to understand that when the fire was lit prior to, to the revision, so I guess this would be uh, in the 1955 or 1951 revisions by Pius XII, there was a special ritual in text that would have been used to ignite the fire. It had to be lit by flint you can just go take a lighter or anything like that hmm. uh, and what they said this the 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 flint symbolized was the stone the tomb the rock tomb that used to that, that would be the the burial place of jesus you know what is rock like it's hard. dead and hard and Cold. lifeless becomes the source to Whoa. ignite uh, the new life which would come with uh, Christ. I bet that was a nightmare for the liturgy people trying to light. It's hard enough to light a fire outside in the wind with, with gasoline, never mind yeah. with uh, a yeah. rock. I thought that was a pun that Jesse was going to make, a nightmare. Like, nope, no, I didn't think no, about that one. Really, that's okay. a horse. I guess you guys are learning from me, <laughs> just like I'm learning from you. Aww. <laughs> so... Um, there's the, the fire at the beginning, though, So, uh, and the, the prayer used to speak about this, uh, this new flame struck from stone. It doesn't say that, unfortunately, but that's still something that uh, we might keep in mind. But here's the first uh, thing that could go unnoticed, and it has to do with the marking of the candle. There's a rubric that says, uh, after the blessing of the new fire, one of the ministers— This is one that we still use. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm reading this right out of the third edition of the Roman Missal. Um, it says— after the blessing of the new fire, one of the ministers brings the paschal candle to the priest who, here it is, cuts across into the candle with a stylus. He cuts hmm. across into the candle with a stylus. I don't, I don't, I'm at a loss for this one. I don't know. I've heard that it's done. I don't know why. Is that like cutting the animal or the piercing of Christ? Uh, yeah, well, this, this is the great uh, liturgical mystery, right? So we read these rubrics, we accept them, but then you try to unpack them and get to the treasure beneath them. Uh, when I was a student here, Dr. Fagerberg would make this observation with uh, regard to what's called sacramental character. You remember what sacramental character is? It's a stamping, impressing of a reality into something. An indelible mark. It's an indelible mark, yeah. The Greek word for character is charik or kerosene, and it literally means uh, like an engraving tool or a sharp stick, right? So when they would make a movable type, you would take this engraving tool and you'd carve out the letter G according to some fancy font or something like that, and it would stamp it onto the page. And we call the little letters on the page now 
characters, and it all comes from this tool, uh, this, this word about the engraving tool. And what sacramental character does is that certain sacraments, baptism, confirmation, and holy orders, it is uh, as if, I imagine, the Holy Spirit coming upon you with a supernatural stylus or sharp stick or engraving tool, and he's going to etch onto your visage the characteristics of Jesus Christ. Right? So after receiving those sacraments, you have a conformity to Christ that is indelible. It's etched into your very I don't, ontology, if we can put it that way. Right? Mm, the so word. what we're doing here then, now what most of us will probably see, I mean, this is a convenient uh, way to do it, right? The candle already comes marked, right? And the priest uh, would just like trace uh, the sign of the cross there or the alpha and the omega or the letters. But strictly speaking, what the rubric says, and this is what I think the association is, is to that sacramental character where you take a stylus, an engraving tool, a sharp stick, and you cut into this candle the, the, the cross and the letters conforming this candle to the flaming torch, the pillar of fire that would eventually be Christ. So you're, we're cutting into Christ. Uh, you, are, Christ. you are conforming that candle in an indelible, irreversible way to Jesus Christ. Okay. So Perfect. five minutes before that vigil begins, it's just uh, a tubular shape of wax. Right. But after this happens, it is an image of Christ. It's probably like carving the um, consecration crosses on the slab of an altar. It, it's got the five wounds all of a sudden, and you can't, you can't put that stone back in. It's there forever. Well, let's go. This is a second point. Um, this is at rubric 12. It says, when the cutting of the cross and of the other signs has been completed, the priest inserts five grains of incense into the candle in the form of a cross while saying, by his holy and glorious wounds, may Christ the Lord guard us and protect us. Amen. This is the point you're making here, Dennis. Compare this candle now to the altar. Well, now it's got the wounds of Christ. If it's going to signify Christ, it's now more conformed to Christ's wounded body. And you know, a lot of this liturgy stuff, I've been thinking about this lately, life, death, and resurrection, participate in the Paschal Mystery. Well, you're not going to get crucified. You're not going to go sit in a tomb for three days. You're not going to rise from the dead on the third day. How do we do it? Well, it seems to me this is one way you do it, is you actually kind of you know, re-crucify Christ, but you're sharing in the process of this crucifixion and, and rising in the liturgical rite. Yeah, so when we make this candle like Christ, I mean, eventually each of us will have received a candle from this candle, uh, not just at the vigil, but at the baptism, your baptism, the baptism Correct. of your children. You have the baptismal candle that is taken from this flame of Christ, and we become little flames, I guess, after the example. And we have candles on the Easter Vigil, too, right? We do, and they're, they're lit from uh, this Paschal candle. Divided but undimmed, they always say, That's right? what so the So you take the light sings. from the candle, but it doesn't make the candle any less. Divided but undimmed. I like that. Because right. oh. you would cut a steak in half, you say, oh, and we have half a steak. You take the fire from the Paschal candle, and suddenly the whole church is filled with So fire. nobody's dim-witted. All right. <laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> So what do we do this candle then is we cut into it the sign of the cross so it is like Christ. Then we, uh, just like when we put that sacred scented chrism on the five corners of the altar, which is Christ. So now we insert five grains of incense into this candle. So there's kind of a parallel going along here with the altar and uh, the paschal candle. And what does incense always stand for? Mm. Uh, prayers or our prayers going up to heaven? Because there's gold, frankincense, and myrrh, right? That's brought to the child. So you have the gold for the king, the myrrh, 
and the incense, I think, is uh, the priestly. It's the priestly mm-hmm. sacrificial okay. stuff. Okay. It is. Uh, somebody remarked when you would have scented candles or something like. I mean, this is the this is a scented candle too, which is the scented candle. Of, yeah, uh, scented candle. Christ. To me, they make no sense. I believe that. Yeah. All right. So what happens next? All right, so we have the cutting of the candle. Cool. We have the uh, conforming of the candle to Christ in his five wounds with mm-hmm. the, uh, the grains of incense. And just before the procession is to start then, right, so we need to, we need to account for this, uh, this smoking pot, right, this uh, pillar of cloud that's going to get us now into Now, don't the, get, we're not talking about smoking pot, pot here, okay? <laughs> we're talking about a smoking a pot. A smoking pot, <laughs> right. okay? All right. Not the smoking of pot. So uh, after the candle is taken care of, then we're going to take care of the thurible. This is what uh, our uh, uh, rubric number 15 from the vigil says. When the candle has been lit, one of the ministers takes burning coals from the fire and places them into the thurible. So where, from where the, is this from the new fire outside? Not from yeah, the from the new fire outside, right. right. Okay, so that, that's something that you do before the vigil starts? You have the fire outside? Right, so the, the fire, the, uh, uh, the first rubric of the vigil is a blazing fire is prepared. Okay, mm-hmm. this is like a campfire. So this takes place before anybody ever shows up. Right, so you show up for the vigil, and already there's this fire going. Right? Mm-hmm. But what happens at this point, most of the time, if you're a server, you know this, is, is we have these little charcoals that come nicely prepackaged, and they have a little bit of a self-igniter around the edge. Oh, of, yeah, it's kind of like cross. a self-light uh, charcoal. It's, gun, you know? it's like, actually gunpowder. Is it? Okay, yeah. Cool. Um, and when you light this with uh, you know, your, your light or whatever it is, and back in the sacristy, it just starts to take off, right? and then it uh, gets red hot like a coal does. In this instance, it's different. How does the thurifer light the charcoal for uh, this procession? He doesn't use one of these uh, nicely prepackaged pieces of charcoal. Rather, you have to, you're going to have to have a scoop or a shovel out there. And imagine digging into the bottom of the Easter fire that's now been burning for, I don't know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, whatever. And you're going to scoop out some of those coals from the fire, and you're going to put those into the thurible. Whoa. And then you're going to really? put... Then you're going to put the incense on top of that. Do people really do this? I don't know. Should pay, so. pay attention should at this. people really do this? Heck yes. yeah, they should do yeah, it. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. It is awesome. Why it would you awesome. not do that? And why? Well, I mean, th- I think of the association then with uh, um, everything is kind of taking on new life from this fire. It's the source of everything of the Easter Vigil. New coals. New, yeah, new fire, new coals. We're going to end up with a new, we have a new candle. We're going to end up with new water eventually. And in the end, we're going to end up with new Christians through their baptism. We're going to end up with new life. But the source of all of this is kind of the fiat lux of this uh, new creation. It's all coming from this new light. Let there be light. Let there be light. And now let there be new light. There was an old Adam and an old Eve, and there's a new Adam and a new Eve. Now there's a new light. Right. The recreation of the world, not just the creation. But I mean, to your question, I mean, do people actually do this? I don't know. But imagine if it were done, all right, if you actually did cut into that candle. If you actually uh, did start the fire from the coal, or, or rather the, the the charcoal from the coal from the uh, Easter fire, um, does it take more effort to do these things? Yes, you bet it does. But not that much more, really. Yeah, yeah not a yeah. lot. <laughs> but think of the sacramental symbolism, and consequently the sacramental reality that is able to be brought to the surface when this happens. Right. So there's a lot at stake here. You can do it or not do it, but it's not a, a it's. It's not for a neutral thing. To do these things is to make 
the, the liturgy of the Easter vigil shine out much more radiantly. Okay, let's take another example. That was a cool rubric or cool whatever. Yeah. Well, I think it is. Yeah. Kind of a nerd that cool way, I guess. Rubric. No, don't be ashamed of living don't be ashamed. Christian life to the fullest. All right, here's another one. This is uh, about who sings the exaltet. This is rubric. I don't even know what the exaltet is. Exalt, let them exalt. I'm going to sing the entire exaltet. That'll take up the rest of oh, the time. Is it long? It's quite it's long. long. Yes. You bet it's long. Oh. Um, this is about who sings the exalted. Now, who generally do we associate singing this with? Who should sing it? Well, I'm probably wrong, but I would say a cantor. No. Yes. You yeah, are dead often wrong. it happens because you are they're the only wrong. ones who can sing it. But. Possibly. But listen to what the rubric says about who uh, the church wants this to be sung. I'm dying to know. Yeah, tell I bet me, you will. The Easter proclamation or exaltet may be made in the absence of a deacon by the priest himself. In the absence of a deacon. So the deacon the is the... deacon is the first choice, oh. right? Because there's a line in, uh, in the exalted that says something like um, it, the deacon is praying for... This line would be uh, uh, left out if a layperson does it. Uh, to pray for him to God who has so... Uh, who has named him to be counted, although unworthy, among the Levites. Hmm. Because the Levites are a type of not just a Levitical priesthood, but in a particular way of the deacons who had care for uh, the temple and the tent and the rest. That was one of the southern tribes in Israel whose job was to do the singing and the liturgical support in the temple of Jerusalem. So the deacon is first. If the deacon can't do it, the priest. If the priest can't do it, who's next? Who's listed next? Oh, man. What's higher than the priest? The bishop. (laughs) Uh, or by an, another concelebrating priest. Okay. Okay. What, and only then, if a deacon can't do it, the priest celebrant can't do it, or a, a, a concelebrating priest can't do it, then it says, uh, because of necessity, then a lay cantor will do it. So in last place, is always a lay person to sing this. So why would, can you give me an example of why a priest would not be able to do it? Like you can't Maybe he can't sing. sing. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's it's, it's a, not the easiest thing to sing. Right. And it's quite long. Right. Yeah. Uh, but I think in all of this, there's sort of a mentality that the, the that a very easy and automatic default decision is I will just have the cantor do it. Okay. But it doesn't do justice to the theology that's inherent in this particular rubric. We said I think in the former podcast that I mean, the way that Jesus performed his saving work is threefold: as a prophet, as a king, and as a priest. And his priestly work is on full display uh, during his passion. And that's the content that is made present. And if the unseen reality of the triduum is the priestly work of Jesus Christ, the church sacramentalizes that by making the priest do all of these things that he otherwise would not, right? That's how the priesthood of Jesus, that unseen reality, becomes visible and audible now in the church's ritual celebration. So this is the one thing is that... uh, uh, the church calls that upon the priest. Coming by again. The church calls upon the priest to do all of these things uh, at the vigil. Except the deacon here seems to be the exception, right? Uh, yeah, it does seem to be uh, the exception. You know, and there's even there's almost a preface type dialogue in here. The Lord be with you and with your spirit. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. There's kind of a priestly offering of the candle in a quasi similar way to what would happen later at prior to the offering of the sacrifice in the Eucharist. Hmm. So the priest, even the deacon, shares in, in the priesthood of Christ in a way different from uh, a lay person. You know, I, I, you didn't mention this, but um, don't you baptize the candle too? After you etch it, you dip it in the holy water? That's at the, uh, 
at the blessing of the holy. Okay, the so holy that's water. later in the. Yeah, we weren't going to get to that, but there's a couple of cool uh, uh, things going but on kinda, there too. But that's kind of part of this whole uh, priest. I mean, you also bless the altar as well, and their oils and when you dedicate like an altar. When yeah. you dedicate. Yeah. An altar. No, what's happening at the when that candle is lowered into the font? There's a couple of uh, patristic interpretations of that. Is one as it's it's really kind of an usually we associate the candle with the pillar of fire, Christ. But in this case, it's sort of an epiclesis, and it's an epicletic gesture. It accompanies okay. the words of the descent of the Holy Spirit. And just as uh, the Holy Spirit descended upon uh, the womb of the Blessed Mother and Christ was conceived in her, so now the Paschal candle descends upon the womb of the church, which is what the font is, and Christians are, are then conceived in that womb. And they oh, are born. When they're baptized. Uh, right. Yeah, when they're oh, born out of that font. That- I never even heard that before, though. Yeah. The font is the womb of the church. Oh, yeah. That is beautiful. Yeah. You, that's yeah. where you die to your old self and are born again, a Christian. Wow. Side. So you go down into the, that's fantastic. In the womb and the tomb and come out. Well, and here's, here's another example of that is, um, you know, you were just about as to be baptized. You're just about to walk through the waters of death, which is kind of symbolic of the Red Sea. And so here now you have the pillar of fire preceding you going through the waters of the Red Sea, and you were going to follow behind that pillar through the waters mm-hmm. to the other side. So it's wow. also kind of a fulfillment of right. that uh, Red Sea. And in some Eastern traditions, they compare that to Christ in the Jordan. And they, we talked about this a few months ago, that the water they would say the water boiled. It couldn't handle being just plain old water when Christ was in it, and it took on this new energy in life. And so huh. the water's new, and you're not, about, you're not about to go into the old water, but this new water that Christ has gone ahead of you. Oh. Excellent. All right, so exalte. Yeah, so the exalte. All right, so we've talked about cutting the candle, uh, incense in the candle. We talked about the uh, who sings the exaltet. And so now we're on number four. Here's another cool thing about the uh, Paschal uh, Vigil and the exaltet. Excuse me. And the, the proclamation of the gospel. This is something you'll only hear at the... Uh, celebration with the bishop, right? So this is a rubric that exists in the ceremonial of bishops. Uh, it says, after this reading from the, the Apostle Paul, so that's the New Testament, so where we have seven, potentially seven Old Testament readings, then we have the reading from Paul, and then we have the gospel. So after the reading from Paul, uh, as occasion suggests, one of the deacons or the reader goes to the bishop and says to him, most reverend father, I bring you a message of great joy, the message of Alleluia. After this greeting, all rise, and standing without his mitre, the bishop solemnly intones the Alleluia. That is cool. Isn't it? It's like the angel Gabriel showing up and saying, hey, I got this message for you. It's like a little delivery and angel. The, and the deacons liturgically are very angelic in nature, right? So they're the messengers. Yeah, they're kind of the, uh, they're like, and especially in the East is the, uh, you know, Jacob has this vision of the ladder going up and down, mm-hmm. and the angels kind of are the, the mediators between heaven and earth. They're, the, they're the, the connectors between the sanctuary and the nave. Wow. And so the deacon is the one who gives instructions to the people. The deacon is the one who uh, tells them when to kneel, when to stand. The deacon is often the one who receives the gifts. So he's kind of the the angel going between sanctuary wow. and nave between. And a lot of the Eastern rites, the deacons have a lot more to do and they run around inside and out and they say, wisdom, be attentive. And they encourage everybody to pay attention. Something is about to happen. So they have a lot oh, of uh, that's really procl- cool. proclamatory role. I've never been to a vigil with a bishop. Maybe that's something I'll, on my bucket list. You know, I never have either. Even though I work with uh, the bishop, I'm usually in my own parish for the, uh, 
for the celebration of the vigil, but I do know that for the first time, at least in La Crosse, we're going to introduce this this year at the vigil. Is this a new thing in the, in the right, or it's just... No, no, this has been in the ceremonial of bishops since it was published in, in the 80s. But, but again, people a lot of these neglect things are just, to do it, or... I guess, I mean, there's a lot of rubrics. There's a lot going on, and, mm-hmm. you know, um, especially if we don't see, you know, maybe what the significance is, it's, it's especially easy to kind of blur and to gloss over them. But when you see, start to see some of the beauty and the content that they have, then they're, they're more attention-grabbing. Right. Yeah, you can, I, I, I watch this on, you know, they, they record and broadcast, and you can see it on YouTube, you know, how they do it at St. Peter's. And sure enough, there's a deacon that will stand up, and he'll sing this line to, uh, to the Holy Father about, uh, Most Reverend Father, I bring you a message of great joy, the message of Alleluia. You know what wow. it really reinforces is that Alleluia is not just a thing we say because we feel like it. There's this thing that's come from heaven, by the way, sort of like the angel appearing to the three shepherds, abiding uh, in the field, saying, hey, the Savior is born today, and then you have to go tell the world. There's also um, the question of um, the peace before the council. You know, we, not, we make the sign of peace now, but before the Second Vatican Council, the priest would kiss the altar and receive the peace from Jesus, and then the line was, receive the peace. So it came from God, and then it was passed on to the deacon and the subdeacon. It wasn't just a sign of peace. Like, here's the peace. The peace <laughs> came down, the pox came down from heaven, wow. and then it was passed from one person to the mm. next. Uh, so it's very much like this. The Alleluia sort of comes with the deacon messenger, and then the bishop says, hey, guess what I just heard? Bam, out to wow. the world. Let's go on to, now this is a rubric from the third edition of the Roman. Is this number so, five, right? Well, it's related to that. Okay. But this one would be, should take place in any, any parish. This, this is, is not new? bishop specific. This is new? I don't think it's new, actually. But let me read it, and you all tell me what you think. So after the epistle has been read, all rise, then the priest solemnly intones the Alleluia three times, raising his voice by a step each time with all repeating it. If necessary, the psalmist intones the Alleluia. What do you hear? Um, Dennis. Uh, I don't know. I was just. I don't thinking, know. I any, you thinking. weren't. You weren't listening. I wasn't. Say it again. I don't know the time. Any time that I've heard something get louder after the third time. Okay, so this is one thing that the Alleluia is repeated three times, right? And in the lexicon of the church, three times is its way of saying the superlative, right? Right. So we say, "Holy, holy, holy." Lamb of God, Lamb of God, Lamb of God. Um, so holy, holy, kiri, holy kiri, means kiri, kiri. holiest. Right. Yeah, holiest. So, yeah, this is they the, didn't have a thing a construction for that in Hebrew, so they would just say it three times to indicate right. that. Right. So this is one way of saying this is the most significant type of Alleluia. Okay, that's uh, the one. It's repeated three times. What else did we notice about it? Got louder. It it doesn't necessarily it doesn't get louder. It goes, it goes up a pitch oh. each time three times. Right? Oh, so Alleluia, uh, Alleluia, Alleluia. It's like the Hollywood ending. Bum, ba, ba, ba. It is sort of yeah. yeah. Okay, so it's 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 resurrecting it's rising you know just as which is the theme of the night there's one other important thing here though after the epistle has been read all rise then the priest solemnly intones the alleluia three times so solemnly who sings it the priest Priest. the priest where else throughout the entire liturgical year does the rubric say that the priest is the one who sings the alleluia no priest never does it yeah he never does it but on this night, it's the priest who is supposed to sing it himself. Mm-hmm. Now, if he can't do it, the cantor can. But notice, it wants, uh, in this great priestly act of Jesus' paschal mystery, 
the church wants that to become audible, tangible, sensible in the person of the priest. And we've seen how this happens uh, on Holy Thursday and on Good Friday. Here's another one of these examples where it's the priest himself who is supposed to sing it. You know, it's interesting. We have a lot of these messengers. When you hear about the Gospels, a lot of them, they're, they're telling each other stuff. Oh, I saw him. He was risen. The tomb was empty. Uh, very few people see the resurrected Christ, but it seems like at this moment it's Christ himself saying the Alleluia rather than having somebody, a mm-hmm. messenger, tell you about it. Yeah, and one other thing about the Alleluia, there's an actual setting of the Alleluia in the Missal, right? So it's not any old um, setting. Oh, so that's pretty rare, too. Like you said, uh, the Ubi Caritas, like the, the Missal rarely says what you're supposed to sing or even mm-hmm. how you're supposed to sing it in this case. Right, and so this just doesn't say sing Alleluia. It says sing Alleluia, here's the music. It's printed in the Missal. Do you know how it goes? I do. Let's go. Alleluia. And then the people re- respond to that. Yeah, I could do that. And then it Not goes up a step. Yeah. Alleluia. And the people repeat it. And then he sings it a third time. Alleluia. Is this more difficult to do than the simple customary Alleluia? Yes, but it's yes. so yes, much it cooler. Yeah, there's so many layers. I've never heard this before. This is great. Mm, yeah. yeah, I hope you hear it uh, at this uh, at this vigil. You know, it, it is a true workout. Uh, mm-hmm. These these uh, Triduum liturgies, um, but they're they're so worth it to to. Be attentive to the rubrics and doing one's best to implement them as uh, the church has it laid out. You know, and if we can do that, then the mystery, which is Christ himself and his paschal mystery, can truly radiate out and touch people in a way that, uh, you know, if we don't do these things, then it might be, a, you know, a little bit. The, the, the substance remains the same, but it lacks a little bit of the luster that it might otherwise have. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.